Welcome back to Three Things. Today, our guest is Mirza Baradarin, a professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, and author of How the Other Half Banks, Exclusion, Exploitation, and the Threat to Democracy, and her most recent book, The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. Growing up in Iran, Mirza experienced firsthand a deep decline of government, where many people's rights were stripped away. When her family immigrated to the U.S., she was just nine years old, but already deeply passionate about the preservation of institutions and the rule of law. Law. After graduating law school in the U.S. and working on Wall Street during the economic collapse and recovery, Mirsa became even more focused on flaws in our system and how they could be made better. Her current work focuses on the racial wealth gap in America and how it can be tied back directly to historical policies and continued systemic issues. In this episode, Rick and Mirsa talk about the history of the racial wealth gap, the impacts of it today, and what can be done to move the needle on these issues. This is Three Things with Mirsa Baradarin. Hello, Professor. It's good to see you again. How are you? Hi, Rick. Good to see you again, too. I want to, st- I want to get right into it. Tell us about the myths in society mm-hmm. today around capitalism in your mind. Yeah, uh, so that, that I think is, is the myth that I go at in, in the entire book, is this idea that like we live in a capitalist society and that the alternative is socialism. Um, but we also don't live in a straight capitalist system. Um, and I think that's especially true when you look at uh, the Black community um, and other communities that have been left out. So this book actually started as a project of looking at several different sort of excluded communities over the years. So Italians, um, you know, Jewish immigrants, uh, Polish immigrants, Germans, uh, Italians, and, you know, Irish, and how they were not considered white. There was a lot of discrimination. And, you know, none of which was was as much as the the Black-White racial wealth gap. And so I I kind of... um, fixed on that story, because I think it tells every other story, if you can kind of follow the thread of what capitalism, how markets and capitalism work when you're excluded from legal protection. So the, the Black community was not only their, you know, their contracts weren't protected by law, their property wasn't protected by law, but also they were like vulnerable to and submitted to a lot of terrorist violence um, that was un you know, accounted for. Um, there was a lot of promises that the Constitution made to the Black community that were violated immediately and uh, over time. And the sort of justice demands from like very righteous justice demands, both at Reconstruction and in civil rights, were kind of not heeded properly, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think at, at Reconstruction, you know, there was this very um, cogent demand for, you know, look, you, you, we have been capital, you have built, you know, a, an entire society on the bodies of black and uh, uh, black men and women. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, if you if we want to, if you want us to participate, or if we are allowed to participate in capitalism, that's the way toward freedom that we need capital, we need some access to land. And that was um, not given. Um, and, and, and subsequently, the black population was we kind of entered into a debt Kind of system of, of sharecropping and 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 the rights were taken away the 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 voting right the the right to representation and, and and equal protection because they didn't have land and they they couldn't protect themselves through through the market and and the same thing happened i think during civil rights is you have this system of redlining which i outline in the book um that starts in you know during the new deal the federal government imposed it on these communities and what that meant is for most of the century black men and women couldn't get mortgages in the neighborhoods that they lived in and so that cements this racial wealth gap because it's not just the mortgage it's all the other credit things as you know you know that rely on your family's wealth and income so your um, consumer credit your ability to get a credit card all of that stuff and when the civil rights movement 
starts pushing for that kind of fix, fix this problem, right? How, how do we do it, either capital or integration, then that was also halted. And so I think um, there's a real story here about what it says about capitalism in that there, there are these myths that we don't apply. And I think if, if anyone's been doing capitalism, it's been black communities because they haven't had any state subsidies right. ever. One of the things I, I want to peel back a little bit of this, you said that when slavery got abolished, black people did not get access to land. Why? Tell us a little bit more about you know, what happened. Yeah, Andrew Johnson is the vice president when Lincoln gets assassinated and comes into office very much like, you know, he says this is a white man's government, right? So he he vetoes the Freedmen's Bill, which is the, the allocation of land. The motivating aspect of this, the, the British merchants and the nor- the northern industrialists needed cotton um, prices to be at a certain point. If you look at the oil markets now, you kind of get this, right? You, you cannot have, you know, OPEC um, raising the price of oil or, or limiting the, the, the supply of oil because then the entire U.S. market is beholden to this one source. And, and the southern economy built on uh, slave labor um, was the source of cotton for the entire worldwide trade. So the fear was, if you give the freedmen land, then cotton prices will increase and the costs of cotton production will be you know, too much. And, and, and these companies these companies in the North and, and Liverpool would sink. So it wasn't just a Southern, I think we blame the South a lot. And, and the South certainly has a lot of blame to take, but there was also a demand from the North. And this is, you know, this is, it was a Republicans who kind of halted in the North, right? The Lincoln's party. And so they created a savings bank to say, okay, well, pull your deposits. This is the capitalist, the right way to buy land. You're going to earn it rather than just have it handed to you. I mean, mind you, this is at the dawn of emancipation. So the fact that they hadn't worked hundreds of years to earn it, right? So you start seeing this stuff and then these charges of reverse racism starting to come out 10 years after slavery. Like, oh, well, why are we favoring these black men and women? And the, the savings bank essentially creates this big pool of capital that enslaved uh, former slaves actually use it for um, savings accounts. And this white manager, Henry Cook, um, his brother's Jay Cook, the infamous Wall Street speculator, um, blows the money on railroad bonds, which were the like subprime credit of the day, and it's gone. And um, Congress doesn't step in. It was supposed to be like a nonprofit bank by you know nice Northerners to help black people, and they lost half of their wages. And it was a huge blow uh, for. I mean, decades, if not, you know, a century. And I I just want to mention something because a lot of people don't understand where mistrust comes from. And, you know, the seeds here are hundreds plus of years old, but they're real. They're generational. They're they're real. But I I just, did you ever wonder what would have happened if Lincoln is not assassinated? Yes. Yes. There's two moments. I think the Lincoln assassination and honestly, Robert Kennedy's assassination, like if it hadn't been Nixon, I think there, those were two huge pivot points. And the fact that they both were, you know, assassinated, there was this real halt. And, and I don't know if Robert Kennedy would have win, but there's no way Hubert Humphrey was going to beat Nixon, you know, and, and or George Romney on the left, you know, George Romney became a hero of mine on the Republican side, because he, he was like a con- convinced about racial inequity and was like, look, as a Republican, I believe in capitalism and what capitalism requires is that we don't segregate people. And, you know, he, mm. he has this like really radical language during the, the election and he got disqualified for this. Um, he said something about Vietnam. He was like, I was brainwashed about Vietnam, which he was right. Like he was like, I was lied to. And 
and he got disqualified as un-American. And so he, he dropped out of the race. But really, I wonder what America would have looked like if it was George Romney instead of Nixon, you know, and, and what the Republican Party would have looked like. Because I think in a way, the Democrats would have stayed Southern Democrats and, and the Republicans were the business of like, you know, progress at the time, or they, they could have been. Let's talk about the New Deal. And let's talk about the similar elements around the FHA program, the GI Bill, and ultimately how in the same or in a similar way, it kind of separated the Blacks from government-supported uh, capitalism, if you may. Yeah, yeah. So this is, I mean, history is not inevitable. History, there's a lot of ways that things could have gone differently. And and it's not like one person being a villain or being some bad. It's kind of like the like evolutionary history, like random things happen and then you can accumulate advantages super fast like humans did in, you know, the evolutionary cycle. But, but, but I think like FDR is another pivot point where he... He needed the Southern Democrats to push his New Deal agenda, which, you know, uh, was you know a response to the Great Depression. The business community was against him. But FDR is the one, I mean, he's like a hero today to the left, but his administration inscribed segregation into the law. They, they create these FHA and HOLC maps where they go around the country. And, and the maps are now available. They weren't when I was writing the book, but I was like looking in archives. And now... Uh, there's this website called Mapping Inequality by Richmond EDU. It's very easy to find. And you can look at the red line maps in literally any um, city in the country. And, and so you go around the country and you see this and they're very explicit. Like this is a black neighborhood and it's therefore red line because it's not just that you get this FHA mortgage. It's also that you, you're building the American suburb and the roads then come bifurcating the, the black redlined areas. You start putting pollutants in those redlined areas. The jobs go where the white families are and then local taxes um, fund the schools, right? So the schools become much more, um, you know, uh, uh, ladders of mobility in the white uh, neighborhoods and in the black redlined ghettos, essentially uh, the, the, the jobs are gone, the, the, the infrastructure of, of sort of like subways and stuff isn't, um, the upkeep isn't good and then the schools. And then you start layering on top of that, the war on drugs and the policing. And so it, it really, you can really draw every bad, like racist disparity right now to those segregation maps. And those red line maps match up today to where people live. So if you look at like George Floyd, where he was, um, killed was a formerly red line areas. And it's a, it's right. a banking desert, it's a food desert, and the schools are underfunded. It's across the board. It's, it's similar. You know, in your book, you talk around the fact that at some point here, and it was that the Blacks got left behind, even from others got discriminated against. And there's a story, you know, the original Bank of America was the Bank of Italy, or part of it comes out of the Bank of Italy. And it was a response towards not getting banked by kind of the white banks. I, I, I thought that was completely fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the Bank of Italy starts in San Francisco the same way that any black owned bank or any you know, Jewish owned bank or any German owned bank started is because you can't get banking services at like white banks. And so they started to serve Italian-Americans. And then once that FHA loan comes, the Bank of Italy is able to make a ton of money from, because the FHA essentially, you, you're finance people, right? It takes the risk out of lending because it guarantees the mortgage, right? There was also an FHA consumer loan program that the Bank of Italy and other banks also get to. So it's like you're giving revolving credit 
with a secondary market guarantee on that credit. And that doesn't last a long time because it really like the the market takes over there. Um, So there's a robust secondary market for these revolving credit lines. And so the Bank of Italy gains from these these programs, makes a ton of money, then branches into California, becomes a Bank of California, and then, you know, becomes Bank of America by through mergers. And this this happens in the in the 80s, as you know, banks merge and become these mega banks. You know, Hugh McCall had a lot to do with the creation of Bank of America. Yes. And that was, you know, Nations Bank coming out of the Southeast, out of Charlotte, indeed, but merging with Bank of America to form Bank of America. But we talk a lot about access to good credit is fundamental to creating kind of real wealth. And what we see is how the government helped a lot of the white communities uh, mm-hmm. through good credit programs build that kind of wealth and that momentum that you talk about that then becomes Mm -hmm. kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit what you mean about what is good credit and bad credit, because there's a lot of bad credit programs out there that unfortunately a lot of the, you know, the black community has been pushed towards. Yeah, yes, exactly. And so the, where the good credit was not available in these areas, the sort of contract sales or installment lenders um, came in and, and part of it was that they weren't, bad lenders, they were just filling a market void with very high risk credit. Because if you're getting, you know, I mean, the contract lenders, like arguably they were bad, right? So they were selling homes to to people ostensibly as a mortgage, but it wasn't a mortgage. It was just a fancy rental agreement. And so if you missed one payment, you lost it without any legal process. And so, so that, that was really gutting for a lot of people in the community. So the distrust of these financial institutions doesn't even have to go back to the Freedmen's Bank. You can go to any era and look at an exploitative lender. And and so the early roots of the civil rights movement actually up north were boycotts of these installment lenders where you would go and you would buy a couch and a a refrigerator and they would bundle it up into this contract where the, the way that the contract was formed is that you could pay the entire principal and all the interest. And if you missed one payment, it was looked as a default across all of the items that you would ever purchased at the store so that you would get the whole thing. The repo men would come and you'd get everything, right? And so um, the, the initially these groups, these like mother's groups or whatever in Harlem or Detroit met up with these lawyers and these lawyers really like creatively went to court and said, because the, because the lenders were saying, this is a contract, like there's no, like you signed this contract and this this part of the bundling was in there. And, and so they started arguing against these contracts and, and, and lobbying legislatures uh, to say, you can't include these things in contracts. And they had some early wins and this store um, sues this, this group for boycotting them. They're like, you can't boycott a store. Like that's, we have constitutional rights. And the court is like, well, sure they can. They're expressing like this freedom to boycott. And that was in 1940. And Martin Luther King essentially adopts the model of a boycott. So the Montgomery bus boycott, that whole agenda for Martin Luther King was also, look, we will put boycotts, economic boycotts onto these, mm. these institutions that are discriminating. You know, And in the South, it was segregation, obviously, on the buses and all of that, which we've heard about. But in the North, it was this credit thing that they were wow. really pushing on. And, and so that was a big issue in like the, the post civil rights era, there was riots that erupted in these um, uh, Northern uh, neighborhoods. And a lot of it, like once they started investigating the riots, it wasn't just random violence. It was going into these lenders and like 
taking the books, like not even taking the stuff, just burning the books wow. where the lenders were. And so, you know, Congress met, met on it, the Senate, and, and that was the big issue. And, and I think that's where some of, I think somewhat misguided um, legislation like the CRA kind of um, response to, I, I'm a fan of the CRA, but also it was really meant for a different time. And it didn't recognize that we were already, by the time the CRA was passed, Bank of America was already becoming like a mega bank, you know? And so it, it, I don't think it's quite the right or, or the adequate remedy for the problem. You, uh, I, I think it was you, um, or you were quoting somebody talking about uh, subprime lending and payday loans as the, you know, kind of Jim Crow uh, lending. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us what, what you mean by that, because those are, those are modern day instruments out mm-hmm. there that take advantage of, of the same population. Exactly, exactly. I mean, if you look at what Jim Crow was, it was two, you know, you, you have your white institutions and your black institutions. And then the idea was like, you, you have your schools and we have our schools, you have your water fountains and we have our water fountains or train cars or whatever. And that system was legal. And I think, um, but, you know, it turns out that the schools for the black you know, uh, kids weren't as good and they weren't as funded. And so there was, you know, segregation was not, it wasn't equal, right? Um, and I think you, you see this in the credit realm, you know, where you have FHA credit versus a contract sale. FHA credit is 6% mandated, right? That's a cap on how much they can charge for interest. Your deposits are getting 3%. You're paying 6% on a loan. It's kind of like a win for the bank. It's a win for the homeowner whose equity is rising or a GI bill. Technically the GI bill was a loan, but it was like a thousand dollars for your education and the interest was very minimal. Um, whereas, you know, in the black community, a contract sale, you're paying, you know, 36% APR um, because it's not really, you know, you, you're using loopholes. You're not getting the house. There's no increase in equity. So that's, a, that's two different credit systems. And, and so I think there, there becomes this sense of like moral, like approbation that we have toward people who take out payday loans or contract, you know, like, Oh, it's just bad decisions or it's, it's like foolish to get into debt where we, we kind of ignore the fact that like the middle class built their wealth on credit. So credit is wealth building. If it's good credit, you can't, a person can't um, gain wealth if, if you don't have credit and don't come from money. So you either can come from money or you can get a small business loan, a mortgage loan, a loan to, to uh, you know, fulfill your dreams. That's kind of capitalism. But what if that loan is secretly like you know 400% interest and you're you have to get a payday loan to go to work because you need your car and you know so so it it becomes a a different credit system that um, doesn't allow for wealth creation it's just fascinating just i find this this whole topic i just want to read more and more on it so uh, thank you for uh, taking taking all of us there you know you also talk let's talk about this white terrorist acts on 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 blacks and i, I found the story of tulsa in durham north mm-hmm. carolina kind of an interesting contrast mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. you know kind of how how the people that actually even black people that were successful and their banks were successful ended up you know being targeted and in many ways you talk about a doctor in chicago and mm-hmm. i think that's a really interesting human context here uh, absolutely yeah so this is important i mean i think um, those of us who, you know, I come from a, a war refugee and um, I don't know if, you know, unless you've had threats of violence, I think it's hard to understand. And many people who have lived in other places, I, I think there's a privilege to going through life without having like a threat of violence against you, you know, and I, I have that now 
my children have it. And I feel like, you know, it's such a luxury um, to have it. And um, I think a lot of black families didn't ever have it, you know, and I think um, it connects to some of the, the, the sort of, you know, Black Lives Matter marches over the summer, but you, you look at the legacy of black business and there isn't a single business owner and until quite recently and even now who, but especially during that era who, um, whose business concerns weren't just terrorism, right? That the white mob would come and take your store if you did too well. And so the Durham-Tulsa contract, which contrast was there's several black Wall Streets around the country and Tulsa was one and Durham was one. Mm. And Durham, the leaders in Durham were, were like very like, um, uh, cognizant of sort of white resentments building. And so they made their buildings very small. They put them on the outskirts of town. They didn't do showy, like nice buildings. And, mm-hmm. and, and also Durham had sort of broad, like um, uh, everyone was doing okay. Cause it was tobacco and some textiles. And so there was, you know, and, and, and they were able to survive that sort of heat of racial terrorism. Tulsa was the opposite, right? It, there was an oil boom and the black community um, did very well. And they had this black Wall Street in the middle of town. They built a beautiful church and it was Greenwood Avenue. There was just like a, a very wealthy black community. And then the oil slump happened and the, the white resentment grew. And, you know, like every issue, there was like one issue where a, a, maybe a black teenager had looked at a girl in an elevator. And anyway, they, they put him in prison at night and the black men were NAACP members and they were armed. Everyone in Tulsa was armed. And so the black men came to protect this boy from what always happened, you know, they didn't want a lynch mob. And so at that night um, they were protecting him and then a shot rang out and then the white community essentially burned Black Wall Street. And overnight, and and thousands of people were displaced. And now now we know, like, I gotta say, when I was writing this book, there was these, these um, accounts I was looking at the firsthand accounts of like aerial bombs coming and I'm like this can't be that cannot be like I I, and now they've released the documents slowly but there were bombs and they bombed out and these people were essentially refugees for the rest of their lives and and couldn't talk about like the people that remained didn't talk about the Tulsa now we're calling it a massacre but there they called it like an event you know for hundreds of years and I think that that kind of um that's that that happened in a couple places. Wilmington, Delaware, um, Georgia. There were several sundown towns where the white community essentially ejected all of the black residents from a town at the threat of violence and um, took property. Right. So, so black property owners were constantly in threat of their properties being just taken by mob. You know, it is. Um, it's hard to listen to this, to be honest. Uh, it's it's hard to to un, you know, and I think it's. I don't think this country will ever be able to move forward in any way if we don't acknowledge the past and in many ways the present. And yes. if we don't, if we don't really, uh, you and I talked when we talked the other day about the kind of the missed opportunity by Obama um, and, and maybe his belief that racism was, you know, more a thing of the past, but, you know, all these facts are still very systemic. And, you know, like you said earlier, we, we, we blame the individual, we blame, you know, kind of the group, but in reality, there's no chance. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, George, uh, James Madison called slavery America's original sin. And I think the problem is that we've just never um, confronted it. We didn't do it at the civil war. We didn't do it in the civil rights movement. It's like, okay, we're going to stop that bad thing, but we're not going to 
talk about the mythologies that justified it. And I think you're exactly right. Until we kind of like have truth and reconciliation, we can't move on. It's still the stain. And, and you're seeing already the, this backlash of like, why I'm just sick of talking about racism. We're just like, we haven't really done it. We haven't, we haven't done it. I, I think there's a, there's a couple yeah. of topics that, um, mm-hmm. that I found interesting uh, reading about is one of this, I know you're, you're in support of the, you know, why, why not turn the postal banking system into mm-hmm. some way of providing financial access to the, the, the banking deserts out there. I think it's like, 59% of the post offices are in areas where there's no banks. Uh, and there's 63 million unbanked Americans, mostly in those, you know, banking deserts. And, you know, I would love, I know there's some light experiments yeah. going on. How seriously is the government taking this? How how mm-hmm. bullish are you on this? Yeah, so, I mean, Trump's um, inspector general just, he, he's still there, um, did, did a pilot on postal banking. And, you know, postal banking... It was, a, it was a solution from in my last book. This book I ended with like, look, we just need to wide scale, wide scale reform. The last book I felt like it was this idea of like, look, you know, when Bank of America, going back to Bank of America, Hugh McCall said, you're either growing or you're dying, right? And so you either grew or you died. And a lot of rural communities, a lot of poor communities lost their bank because it's not profitable. And so now you have fintech firms that are filling this, this gap and, and doing it, you know, sometimes quite well, sometimes not as well. But, you know, even like PPP loans, fintech firms were able to get get loans to smaller businesses better because they, you know, have fewer like, you know, just uh, legacy customers. So, the, the, so there is a way that you're equalizing. But for a lot of the rural communities, there isn't that point of like cash to digital, right? right, right. Um, we need broadband, they need broadband and they need or Native American reservations. So this is like a, an acute problem that isn't getting better. And it's not a problem that banks are interested in fixing or should they fix because it's more a uh, infrastructure problem. So the idea here is just look, you could go cash your checks at the post office and get this digital mm-hmm. account, which then you could, you know, add any... Yeah, you just participate in commerce. You can buy online. You can do whatever you want. And I mean, this was something that we did historically in America. A lot of other countries, you know, do it. Um, the post is the number one like bank for poor people right. worldwide. You know, so it makes sense. I think there was some like immediately. I mean, in America, like I wrote about the history in the first book. It was a Republican idea but it got adopted this time around by some Democrats. And so it became kind of partisan, but right now we do have a, yeah. So it was started by an Ameri- uh, Republican and ended by a Democrat postal banking and it, it got partisan as everything does. Shocker. Um, Shocker. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, but they are, I think they are interested. I think increasingly people are starting to see that this is not a political solution. You don't have to ha- adopt huh. a version of banking. You just yeah. have to, yeah. Give people banking so now, services. With all the with all the bad rep, right, rightly so that a lot of the tech firms are getting right now uh, around the you know how they're not policing the impact of their own technology. I th- I think fintechs could you know with the support of the government uh, could really make it you know a leapfrog advance here. And I think it's something that again I'm not hearing a lot about. And I have some friends in the space that I'm going to nudge and push. Just to see what yeah. I, if they're even thinking about it. You know, one other thought uh, again in the yeah. in the more future looking. You know, clearly, you know, American is getting reorganized and and people are coming out of the suburbs. And part is COVID, part was already started. Mm-hmm. 
And that you can see it, you can even see it in Charlotte and other cities that we're in, like the gentrification of areas and the pushing out of the of the poor communities. Um, mm -hmm. You talk a lot about the opportunity, maybe as a way to revitalize those areas versus gentrify mm -hmm. those areas. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. And, and, and what do you think can happen at the local government level to do that? Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I think I came up with like a white paper on this um, called the 21st Century Homestead Act. I mean, borrowing things that worked before. But I mean, you have areas like Detroit or Baltimore, parts of Philadelphia, where there's like blight. You know, there's there's some areas right now where you can't afford a house, you know, San Francisco, New York, L.A., where it's just, you know, uh, uh, a seller's it's a you know seller's market you've got bidding wars all sorts of stuff but you still have regions in america that the housing market's essentially broken detroit you're buying homes for like four thousand dollars because nobody will you know it's you know private equity firms come in and buy them because you can't get financing because it's there's there's blight around it the development the the sort of um, upkeep is more than you know the the overpaid ta the taxation the taxes that are unpaid are more than you know, the cost of the house. And so in those areas, I think one innovative thing that localities and, and, and regions can do is sort of land bank those homes and revitalize together with public money. And, and New York City did this in Harlem and in Queens is buy up a bunch of houses and tax arrears and redevelop them. You know, you can use private developers and then um, grant or sell at below market to the residents of those areas. Now, New York didn't do it to the residents. So it helped push gentrification, but it made a ton of money off of these sales because mm -hmm. they they bought, you know, essentially they just kind of waived the taxation and then they redeveloped. And, and, and if you do it holistically in an area, you don't have the problems of having to get bank financing. And so there's some things that, mm. you know, you need coordination for, you need, yeah. you need some yeah. sort of like, right. Um, Cause you can't rely on a private underwriter if you're saying well you know finance is one individual house right. like baltimore did this they tried to give houses away for one dollar but no bank would finance the upkeep right like you, you need a hundred thousand dollars to make it livable and no one's going to give you a hundred thousand dollars on a one dollar equity investment right so right. so right. so this is to remedy that you and know, i think there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of potential mm -hmm. we uh, in, in puerto rico after the hurricane maria we um we started this um this project uh, called Rebuild Puerto Rico. And what we ended up doing was buying projects that had been abandoned before finished and went and um, bought the project, finished it, and then took a $100,000 loan and sold it to people that had worked, that had jobs for basically $20,000, but they need to pay their 20,000 to get the, the, the balance forgiven. Right, so that's they have exactly what I'm that's exactly Yeah, it. so we we have a hundred homes that's in Puerto perfect. Rico today that we're that's doing this at a very micro level, but something that the team in Puerto Rico has done an amazing job. Uh, that's you know, fantastic. Kind of, you know, just an experiment on it. Listen, I I know we're running out of time. Yeah. I uh, I there's mm -hmm. a I, I read your article on private equity and I found that fascinating. So maybe a topic for another kind of discussion. And there's yeah. seven you know, other things I would love to learn. So I, I look yeah. forward to continuing this dialogue, but. Um, you also uh, stated something that stayed with me, which is, you know, poor families, I guess, spend close to 10% of what they make on transaction fees. Let me just repeat mm -hmm. that. 10% of what they make on transaction fees to access the banking system in one way or another. When rich mm -hmm. families, you know, we pay close to zero or zero, right? Because mm -hmm. of they're using our money. That just, just seems wrong. 
in so many levels, in so many ways. If you were in the administration today, um, and you know you had the power, what what would you do to at least level that playing field? Yeah, I mean, this is the a role for opening up the payment system, whether it's through postal banking or through a fintech app or whatever. I mean, we have we give banks a monopoly on payments right now, and it, there's no need to, right? So you you have to have people being able to send financial transactions without paying a fee. Um, so the unbanked right now, I mean, how can you do it? If you don't have a bank account, you have to go through a check casher, you know, to send remittances, Western Union. It's like an old legacy system. And the technology is there. We have technology to clear a check with a photo. And that technology is only, you know, able to be used by banks, but but that's a policy decision. And I think the tech is there already and we just need to open it up. So there's a lot of policy decisions. And, and you know, on the private equity, there's, there's like as many good equity for like, and sometimes I feel like, look, our only choice is with the market. Like it's only shareholders and equity holders that, that are doing these like long-term decisions, you know, on, on climate, on race. Right. And so sometimes it's, it is, you look, if there's a solution here and the government is too broken to do it, but I, I guess I still, despite the, the, you know, bad kind of topics that I write about, I'm still an optimist that, <laughs> we can we can coordinate. I have to stay optimistic. You know, <laughs> Professor Baradaran, um, I, I have loved this conversation. I, I've learned a lot. I admire your work. Um, thank you for the inspiration. I, I have great respect for our team that is just putting, you know, our our platform out there. I think there's so much more that we could and will and will do and should and will do as a company and inspired by your work. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. It was a pleasure. That was one educational conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Here's the three things I take with me from Dr. Baradaran. Number one, her quote around history is not inevitable. Our country's 245 years old, and clearly a lot of our dividedness comes from what has happened in the past. We must understand our history to be able to write a better story of our future. And it has to start by rebuilding trust trust in each other, trust in our leaders, and trust in our institutions. Number two, it is the notion that one thing can alter history so dramatically. The death of Lincoln likely did that for where we are today as a country. In the same token, it will only take one leader to take us in a different direction into a much brighter future. And number three is the notion that pure capitalism does not exist. The government has and should create the right programs to bring those marginalized into the system, and that includes providing opportunities for wealth creation. It's time we do more of this and less of just plain subsidies. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.